Uh, Happy New Year to all of you. Um, Curious how many people actually made it to midnight last night? Actually, quite a lot of you. Wow, that's great. Glad you're here. Um, I've lived in Tempe for 30 years, and I cannot remember ever hearing so many fireworks at midnight. It was just a barrage. So anyways, glad to have you here uh, this morning. This morning we'll be in uh, Psalm 103. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you, and uh, you can turn to page 288 in that Bible if you would like to read along. So naturally, yes, here we are at the dawn of yet another year, and whether you've seen 10, 20, 30, 50 New Year's, each often begins with anticipation. It's as if turning the page from one year to another uh, to the next offers a fresh start full of new possibilities and opportunities. And I wonder if at the root of these feelings, perhaps, is a bit of an inner yearning for who we want or we hope to be. Statistically, half of us that make New Year's resolutions will make health-related resolutions. Uh, We want to eat better, we want to be more active, we want to feel more fit. We want to read more, to save more, to play more. We want to study harder maybe for the next year. And yet for a third of us, our resolutions won't make it out of this month. And for half of us, resolutions die in February. And unfortunately, as I was reading about it this week, the numbers don't get any better the older you get. Only about 10% of us that are over 50 will achieve our New Year's resolutions. And I can count myself in that camp. Now this morning, I'm not here to argue the merits of resolutions. In many cases, I think resolutions can be helpful. But I do want us to think about what is underneath at least some of our resolutions. As I mentioned a moment ago, our resolutions reveal something about ourselves. They often reveal an inner yearning we have for who we want or hope to be. And they naturally reflect who we believe that we are. And they often, often where we find our identity. So what I'd like to hope to do this morning is to shift our focus away from ourselves. Rather than looking at what we would hope to do or to accomplish, in the next year to instead behold what God has already done for us in Christ. Instead of dreaming about the kind of person you want to be, I'd hope you would see who you already are today in Christ. So the Bible reveals to us the very character and nature of God. From the beginning to end, we see a picture of God's holiness, his righteousness, and his mercy. And the Bible also recounts for us what God has done through his creation, the gracious promises he has extended towards his people. The Bible's filled with accounts of mankind as well. We see all of our full sinful nature on display in page after page. And yet in the midst of this, we see God's generous and faithful work to redeem a people for himself. Perhaps nowhere do we see so clearly the character of God and the character of man revealed as we do in the Psalms. Just consider how often we see David's heart exposed in the Psalms as one example. So this morning, the psalmist will give us a picture of God's character and in particular, God's steadfast love. 
And as we'll see, God's character and his love couldn't be further from our own. While we may have some understanding of God's love, as we read the psalm, I think we can't help but be overwhelmed by the enormity of that love, especially when compared to the love of the world. Today we'll see the heart of God, which will then also expose our own hearts. We'll see in a nutshell that God's ways are not our ways. Dane Ortland writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that we tend to project our natural expectations about who God is onto him instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God himself says. So whether that is projecting our sense of justice onto God or our sense of what love ought to look like, we end up expecting God to feel and to act how we would, or at least how we would want him to. This morning, my hope is that we will let God speak for himself rather than trying to conform God to some image we have of him, we would instead behold the glory of God's character. I think we will be both surprised and amazed by what we see, and in response, it is my expectant prayer that we would be moved to praise and worship by what we see. So the psalm we'll be reading again this morning, you can find it again on page 288. Psalm 103, it's the first of four praise psalms praise and thanksgiving psalms that conclude book four of the psalms, which are really Psalm 90 through 106. And broadly, book four in psalms celebrates the kingship of the Lord. And these concluding psalms rightly form a response to God's kingship. And as you might know, psalms is a book of poetry. And at times the psalmist will use different poetic and literary devices. So the crux of Psalm 103, the high point of the psalm, the pearl within the oyster, as it were, is found almost directly in the middle, in verses 11 and verses 12. And not unlike a pearl, which is made up of layer upon layer, we'll see that the psalm builds toward that high point in a series of layers, one after another. So you might imagine concentric ideas radiating out from the core of the psalm like rings around the high points of verses 11 and 12. Perhaps a less cultured example, you might know what I'm talking about, but you might remember those rainbow gobstoppers, right? Made up a bunch of different layers of flavored candy. And then imagine that those layers are a verse or two surrounding the hidden treat inside. This morning we'll savor one sweet layer after another, working our way inward until we arrive at the main point in the middle. So won't you turn to Psalm 103 and let's read together. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins 
nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I mentioned at the beginning a bit about the structure of the psalm and that it's a little bit like an oyster. You probably can immediately see that David begins and ends the psalm with expressions of praise to God, like bookends surrounding the psalm. And in particular, verses one through five begin with a personal expression of praise. Now I'm using the word praise, but you'll notice that when I read the psalm, perhaps even in your Bible, It says, bless the Lord. Certainly the Lord blesses us. He knows our needs and responds to them, but how do we bless the Lord? Well, as David continues in verses two through five, we see that he recounts the wondrous works of God. And in so doing, he responds to them. And isn't that the heart of worship? It's responding to what God does. So some translations, like the New Living Translation or the the NIV, will render these verses praise the Lord instead of bless the Lord, because that is at the heart of what the the writer in the psalm is doing, and it's what he's encouraging the reader to do as well. The psalm begins by praising God's holy name, and while the praise being offered by David emanates from his whole being, David writes that all that is within me Even more so, everything that God does emanates from who and what he is. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? When Moses asked, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and They ask me, what is his name? God replies, I am who I am. You see, God is unique and transcendent. And I use that word unique not the way that you and I use the word unique. God is like nothing else. And he reveals himself to his people by way of his holy name. David continues to bless the Lord by not forgetting all of the Lord's benefits, all of the good things that God has done and all the things that he has promised to do. And David recounts these benefits in verses three through five. Perhaps you saw them. 
David says that God forgives, God redeems, and God satisfies. David starts by saying that God offers forgiveness of sin and healing from sickness. You see, sin is at the root of what separates us from a holy God. But God, in his loving kindness, extends forgiveness towards those with contrite hearts, those who by faith and repentance turn to him. God's blessings extend to the body as well as to the soul. It's certainly possible that David is remembering being healed from a physical ailment brought on by his sin. In Psalm 38, David writes, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. God can heal not only our souls, but our bodies as well. And while God may sovereignly appoint sickness in this present age, we can be confident that in the new heaven and then in the new earth, the things of this world will pass away. There will be no more pain and even death will be no more. This is echoed as well in David's next recounting of God's blessings in verse four. For when God forgives our sin, we're rescued not from some abstract judgment, but from death itself. We're rescued from eternal banishment from God's holy presence. Doesn't that make you want to respond like David with praise the Lord? And if that isn't enough, God covers us with his steadfast love and mercy and bestows undeserved honor upon us. Here in verse five is the first mention of a repeated theme in the song, God's steadfast love. Four times in the psalm, David mentions God's steadfast love in verses 5, 8, 11, and 17. And he describes it as being abounding and immeasurable. We get our first glimpse of that here as we consider the overwhelmingly unilateral direction of God's love. God doesn't love us because we first loved him. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that our hearts are often cold we recognize just how undeserving we are of God's love. And yet God's love for us is so great that not only did he give up his only son, but he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heaven. What an immeasurable gift we possess by grace through faith in Christ. David concludes his opening praise by acknowledging that God's lavish love is so abundant that he's full David's cup overflows, and he is satisfied in the good blessings that God bestows on his people. Imagine being so overwhelmed by what God has done that you feel need for nothing else. Imagine not feeling the emptiness of having tried time and time again to fill yourself from the fountains of the world, only to be left needing more. Let's turn now to the core of the psalm, which is contained in verses six through 18. Here, David gloriously recounts God's loving nature. And we'll uncover three layers in succession as we move our way inward toward the peak in verses 11 through 12. In these verses, we'll see God's everlasting righteousness. We'll see his revelation and loving provision for his people. And finally, we'll see his fatherly demeanor towards his people. These things are at the heart of God's loving nature. So as we consider God's loving nature, the psalm first points to God's everlasting righteousness. 
David mentions God's righteousness twice in the psalm, first in verse 6 and then in verse 17. So these verses, verses 6 and then 17 and 18, form the first layer, I'm going to say, around the core truth that the psalm is working towards. So I'm going to read the three verses together for some context, starting in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And then down to verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commands. So we see that God's love is unwavering and unchanging. It's from everlasting to everlasting. And God's steadfast love, his very heart, is bent towards justice and righteousness. Again, Dean Ortland writes that the natural flow of the human heart is toward reciprocity, tit-for-tat payback, equanimity, the balancing of the scales. So when we read about God's righteousness and God's justice, we are tempted to doubt that God could ever truly love us. But you see, Christian, his love and his righteousness cannot be measured in human terms, for his ways are not our ways. The Apostle Paul writes, For while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is God's way. That's the way God's steadfast love is manifested toward his people. His love doesn't sit back and wait to respond to ours. Rather, God is the one who initiates. God's eternal love is behind everything that he does, for it's at the core of who he is. And yet, God's love is also uncompromising. God doesn't ever change something about himself. He remains no less holy, no less righteous as he works out his covenant promises. God remains true to his holy name. And while in our minds, from our limited vantage point, it may seem that there are injustices that go unrighted, oppressions that are not relieved, God sees and God knows and he won't remain silent forever. Perhaps surprisingly, especially in today's day and age, God's love is also directed towards some and not others. You see, his love and his righteousness are not at odds with one another. We see in these few verses that his unbending love is toward those who fear him, those who keep his covenant, and those who obey his commands. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for years. This exclusiveness offends something within us. But remember, God's ways are not our ways. We want to be careful not to cast God in our own image. God's loving nature can be seen through his everlasting righteousness and his faithful pursuit of justice. Next, as we consider God's loving nature, let's look at God's revelation to and his loving provision for his people in verses 7 and 8 and 14 through 16. We see here that God makes his love known in tangible and evident ways, that he knows us. So again, I'll read the verses in context for us, starting at verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
then down to verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. So David begins here by recounting how God made himself known to Moses by alluding back to the Old Testament to Exodus 34, verse 6. Here again we see the heart of God towards his people. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God's love is a patient love, and it's bent towards us in spite of the fact that we are so, so undeserving of it. All too often when we think of God, I said, we we tend to cast him in our image. We presume that there must be limits to God's love because all too often that is what our love looks like. John Calvin wrote, there is nothing that troubles our conscience more than when we think that God is like ourselves. But brother and sister, take heart. God knows you. He knows your weaknesses, and he knows that you're but dust. So in his kindness, he has revealed himself and made known the very nature of his love. His ways are not our ways, and his love is not like our love. For his love is not only steadfast and unchanging, but it's also abundant and overflowing. And in these days, God has made himself known to us through his son. You see, God knows what we ultimately need, and he has provided what we need in and through Christ. God has made known his loving nature through what he says and what he does. Perhaps nothing is more extraordinary when we think of how God has revealed himself to us than when we consider his loving and fatherly demeanor towards his people. So here in verses 9 through 10, and then in verse 13, we see God is both righteous judge and compassionate father. As I read these verses together, perhaps you will feel the tension between God as judge and God as father. Starting in verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And then down to verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. While we've just seen that God's love is patient, slow to anger, we also know that God's kindness is meant to lead us towards repentance. As Paul writes in Romans 2, 4, we ought not presume on the riches of God's kindness and patience. God will preserve his holy name. He will act as divine judge. And yet, while God remains holy and righteous, the Lord does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. We see here that God's love is selfless, for Christ took our sin to the cross, and in a great exchange, we receive his righteousness while he bore our shame. Again, John Calvin writes this when observing the character of God and the character of man. He writes, Men are wont to judge and measure God from themselves, and therefore they think that they cannot be reconciled to God, 
when they have once offended him. But the Lord shows that he is far from resembling man. His ways are not our ways. Not only have we been reconciled to God, not only are we the recipients of an immeasurable mercy, but we are also children of God. And while God's role as judge will one day be complete, his fatherhood is permanent. God's loving nature is revealed to us through a fatherly demeanor towards his people. Finally, we've arrived at the summit. And frankly, these two verses are the reason I was wanting to preach from this psalm and why I think it is appropriate for us at the beginning, at the dawn of a new year. Verses 11 and 12 form the crux, the pivot in the psalm. Everything else hinges on this point. This is the pearl inside the oyster, inside the oyster. So let me read verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Here we see that God's love is incomparable and immeasurable. There is nothing like the love of God. Here the heart of God is revealed, and isn't it stunning? There's one other place in Scripture where we see this phrase, as high as the heavens are above the earth, and that's found in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. There the prophet Isaiah writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God's love isn't petty. It doesn't seek its own way. God's love isn't passive. Rather, it's actively working towards the good of his beloved. God's love isn't contingent on what you did yesterday, today, or even tomorrow. God's love bears all things. It endures all things. God's love isn't lukewarm. It doesn't change from one day to the next. See, God's ways are not our ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Christian, let that sink in. Let that seep into your very soul. God's love is steadfast. He will never forsake or abandon his children, those who are his in Christ Jesus. His love for you is unfailing. He's committed and devoted towards you in a way that you can't comprehend nor imagine. God is utterly faithful in keeping his promises. His love for you will never end. His love has no bounds. His lo he loves you so much that his one and only son, Christ Jesus, bore the just wrath for your sin. The full wages for your sin having been swallowed up by the cross. There's no balance remaining. There's nothing left for you to add. This is the heart of God towards sinners like you and like me. Isn't that amazing?
Finally, David proclaims God's kingship over all things in verses 19 through 22. And just as the psalm begins by giving praise to God, the psalmist concludes with a picture of the entirety of the created order magnifying and exalting the Lord. What ought the response be to the one who rules over all things? To the one whose love is steadfast and from everlasting to everlasting? To the one who utterly removes our sin? To the one whose steadfast love is so great we can't comprehend or measure it? Read with me in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Three times in conclusion, to this psalm, we see that the response is to do the will of God. The angels, all the heavenly hosts, do his word. They obey his voice, and they do his will. If you're here this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in God, first I would want to say I'm glad that you're here this morning. Of all the things that you could do in the new year, there would be nothing better than to spend time reading about who God is, what he's done, and what he's promised to do. If you'd be interested in doing that, talk to someone around you. Come up, talk to me after the service. We'd love to talk with you. Perhaps as we close our look in the psalm this morning, with, we can do that with three points of application, three ways to root ourselves at the beginning of this new year. First, remember and obey. If you look at, back at verse two, we're told to forget not all his benefits. This is just another way of saying that we're to remember what God has done. And in light of what God has done, we are also to remember to do his commandments, verse 18. In light of what God has done, our response ought to be obedience. We obey God because of who he is. In fact, in verse 18, the word here translated remember can alternately be translated as obey. You see, there's a connection between remembrance and obedience. The latter is driven by the former, remembering who God is and what God has done, when seen in its fullest extent, produces godly obedience. Christian, if your heart's desire is to obey God, you can do nothing better than to behold the riches of God's supreme love for you. Spend time in God's word. See the heart of God towards his people. Hold fast to his promises. Remember what God has already done for you in Christ Jesus. There's another phrase that you'll find repeated throughout the psalm. Perhaps maybe you noticed it. But three times in the psalm, David speaks of those who fear God. So the second point of application is to fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Psalm 128, which talks about this fear of the Lord, says, says that those who fear the Lord walk in his ways. 
Verse 18 of our psalm this morning says that those who fear him are faithful in keeping his covenant and remember to obey his commandments. Certainly we do this imperfectly, but we strive to do so faithfully while also relying upon God's forgiveness, which we saw in verse 3. We rely upon his patient and long-suffering love, which we saw in verse 8. We rest in his steadfast love for those whom he calls children, verse 13. And we rejoice that his forgiveness is complete, verse 12. And though we are weak, his love is strong. While our love is often cold, his love endures. It's from everlasting to everlasting. Christian, you were designed to fear God. You were designed to worship and revere a God who is awesome and glorious. And yet that fear doesn't need not manifest itself in terror or dread. We don't need to try to hide away from God. For God has already drawn near to us in the person of Christ. We know not only God's holy and righteous justice, but we also know his holy and steadfast love towards those who can call him Father. If you'd like to know more about what it means to fear the Lord, it might be worth going to that fear of man class starting next week. Finally, last point of application, be satisfied in God. Will you thirst for the things of this world, things that may fill you up for a time, or will you allow the streams of God's steadfast and abundant love to wash over you, to fill you and ultimately to satisfy you? You see, the world will not remember you, but God not only knows you, he remembers you. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So I pray that as we root ourselves in God's steadfast love, that he would give us strength to comprehend with all creation the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of that unsurpassed love. May we be filled with all the fullness of God, and in doing so, may our duty turn to delight. God's ways are not our ways, but his ways are the best ways. So be satisfied in God. Instead of looking at what we would hope to do or hope to accomplish in the next year, let's instead behold who God is and what God has already done for us in Christ. Rather than carefully crafting, cultivating a mask or an image that we want others to see, look in the mirror and see who you are already today in Christ. I pray this year that we would remember God more frequently, that our fear of the Lord would turn to worship, and that we would find ourselves more satisfied with God than with things of this world. Would you pray with me? Father God in heaven, Thank you for the ways you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Pray for my brothers and sisters that rather than trying to project our own expectations onto you, we would instead turn to what you've already said about yourself, that we'd let you speak from your word. Thank you, Father, that your ways 
are not our ways. Pray that you would give us strength to marvel at the incomprehensible breadth of your love for us. May we be filled, satisfied more and more by you and you alone this year. And as we remember all that you have done, all that you have promised to do, may we joyfully submit to you laying aside our sinful desires to pursue godliness through obedience, not because we hope to earn something, but because we are overwhelmed by your steadfast love. May we find true joy and happiness in nothing but you, Father. Amen.